You know, this year in 2022, we are examining a, a theme, an emphasis, if you will, in the congregation, and that is of the importance to build balanced believers. And there's so many different ways for us to break down that particular emphasis, and we're going to do that even through our gospel meetings, our special events, uh, and we're going to revisit that theme throughout the year. This morning, a way in which we can look at our subject is, as we think about building balanced believers, it's much what... Ronnie said in the prayer a moment ago, and that is we remember those from the past, but we also look ahead to the future and we realize that we're building for those days that are yet to come. It's important for us to be engaged in that work and to realize how important that work is. So I'd like for us to look at a subject that's so important, and that has to do with those that are coming up. The church of tomorrow, we often say that is so much a part of the church today. I preached for 12 years in Mechanicsville, Virginia, and it was the site of two significant battles of the Civil War. The first fight that was on that ground was called the Battle of Gaines Mill in 1862, and then on Lee's retreat that ultimately wound up at Appomattox. In May of 1864, they fought on that ground again and called it the Battle of Cold Harbor. General Grant, at this stage of the war, was committed to a strategy, and it was a strategy of attrition. He realized that he had far more artillery, far more troops, and all he needed to do was ultimately squeeze the life out of the Confederate Army. But he waited fatally a day before he attacked at the Battle of Cold Harbor. And a second mistake, at least some would say, that he engaged in was that the troops that he filled the lines with included a great many replacement troops that were nothing more than decorated parade troops. Only experience that they'd ever had was marching around the parade grounds in Washington, D.C. They were raw, they were green, and they filled uh, places from New York and Pennsylvania and Washington, D.C., and many of those that were slain and fallen were those who had never fired a gun before. Even in the midst of that battle, they never fired a shot. They examined one rifle that they were able to get from the battle and found that it had 17 musket balls shoved down into the rifle. In the nervousness of battle, this raw recruit thought that he had fired the rifle and continued to load and reload we think how sad. In fact, it is said that even some of the Confederate troops were wiping tears from their eyes as they shot these ill-prepared troops. Wouldn't we say that these were individuals that were not properly trained? They served their purpose and the war was ultimately won. But for these soldiers, that was the last day of their life on this earth. I think it is true that we could say that failing to train our replacements is an unforgivable sin in leadership, no matter what kind of leadership that we're talking about. We're introduced to a remarkable young man in the book of Exodus, in Exodus chapter 17 and verse 9. In Exodus chapter 24 and verse 13, Joshua is called the assistant of Moses. And when we first read about him in Exodus chapter 17 and verse 9, he has not given us any context or details. He is thus called Joshua. And we find even at the very beginning of his work in Scripture that he is given a task that's in line with his strengths. In Exodus chapter 17 and verse 9, Moses says to Joshua that I want you to go up and fight against the Amalekites. 
And I will stand on the hill tomorrow with the staff of God in my hand. And Joshua does exactly that. In fact, he is so effective, verse 10, that he routs Amalek and his people, verse 13. And what's remarkable is that in verse 14, God says that he wants Moses to recite in Joshua's hearing a promise that God had made about the future of the Amalekites in Exodus chapter 17 in verse 14. As we continue to read about the life of Joshua, we learn some very important truths about him. In Exodus chapter 32 and verse 17, we realize that he is one who had been serving God from the days of his youth. He had been with Moses since he was a lad. In Exodus chapter 33 and verse 11, Moses writes by inspiration that that God spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. And when he came down from Mount Sinai, Joshua the son of Nun would not depart from the tent. Where Moses went, Joshua went. In Numbers chapter 11 and verse 28, we read more about him. And again, the emphasis is that Joshua served with Moses from the days of his youth. And then in Numbers chapter 13 and verse 16, we see that now God was ready to expand Joshua's role. Because he had shown his aptitude in earlier assignments, he was given more responsibility. So we read about him in Numbers 13 and verse 16 as one who was selected among all of his tribe to go out and spy the land of Israel. In Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verse 38, God tells Moses that this is your replacement. He says, encourage him for it is he that will cause Israel to inherit the land. Now here's what we notice in what God and Moses do with Joshua. They instill the idea that he could be and should be a leader even from the earliest age. He kept giving Joshua assignments that would grow him and would prepare him for the things which were to come. And do you notice that Joshua got a lot of face time with the man that he would ultimately replace? He was able to spend time with him and learn from him hands on as he went. And then we realize that he was given greater and greater responsibilities all along the way. And because of this, Israel not only conquered a nation, they found a home. But what about Joshua? When we read the book of Joshua, we realize the task was different, but what did he do? Was there no qualified man in all of Israel to take Joshua's place? We're not really told what the definite plans are after the conquest except to remain faithful and obedient and enjoy the blessings of God. But maybe it was that there was no one for Joshua to find, but we don't read anything about any kind of intention on his part to find the next leader of Israel. And as a result of that, the next three centuries were some of the darkest centuries in all of the history of the Israelites. At the very least, we would say that there was an oversight, a lack of intentionality on Joshua's part. And Israel paid the price. When you were to ask, perhaps, what is it that we need, if we're going to take the mantle of leadership, if we're talking about in the home, if we're talking about on the job, if we talk about some particular task in the work of the church, or if we talk about as we typically think when we preach about leadership, elders and deacons and those who serve in some visible capacity, what do those who would lead later need now? And we might say that they need things like information. They need hands-on training. They need vision. Presented before them. And they need incentives to do the work. 
What I find remarkable is that in the passage that was read to us a moment ago, we have that very thing laid out for us. Do you remember again, as Jesus is going and delivering the final words to his disciples, he had been training them to take over the work that he had started, the work that he had accomplished at the cross, and what he intended out of that. He had been training them from before the public ministry. But now it's time for him to summarize and give them their charge to go out and to grasp the mission themselves. He said, these are the things that I said to you while I was with you, that all the things that are written in the law and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me must be fulfilled. And he opened up their minds to understand the scripture. And he said, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day be uh, risen again, and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are my witnesses of these things. Behold, I send you forth in the promise of the Father, but wait in the city until you receive power from on high. In those words, we find an emphasis that can be reproduced. Jesus had a mission for the apostles, but it was not to stop with them. It was that which was to be carried on in the generations to come. As, again, Ronnie said in his prayer, we stand upon the shoulders of those who have gone before us. We stand upon not just the shoulders of the generation before, but of generations long past. And we are intended to carry on the work that Jesus died on the cross to accomplish. But how do we do that? In the immediate sphere of influence that we have in front of us, those younger than us, those that we can influence, what do we do? You know, John Maxwell is credited with having said that success comes when uh, men are able to do great things by themselves. That achievement comes when leaders are able to get others to do great things for them. That uh, uh, significance comes when uh, great leaders are able to get others to do great things with them. But he says that legacy comes when we are able to get others to do great things without us. We're talking about training replacements who are ready to go into battle for the Lord. Ephesians chapter 6, what does it take? This is something that falls squarely into our laps that we must be thinking about all the time because we'll not always be here. We don't know how long we'll be here. We don't want know what's next with regard to the mission of the church, but we do know that those who come behind us have got to be ready to take on that task. Jesus shows us four things that we need to train our replacements. The number one, training the replacements requires the right message. If you'll notice in verse 44 that Jesus says, While I was with you, I showed you all the things that you can see in Scripture with regard to me. That was the material. You know, in the world of leadership training, there are a great many tools that are uh, effective to be used. And uh, they are principles that at least in some regard have their roots in Scripture, but they have a secular use so often But it's a good tool for us to use in various training that needs to be done. And training needs to be done in so many different areas. Let's think about elders for a moment. Those men who are faced with, in the future, taking on that job, really don't understand, as they will as they serve as an elder, what's involved in doing that work. And so they need training. In 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1, the Apostle Paul says very clearly, it's a work. And then you go later on in that chapter and you see in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 8 that deacons are special servants. And even as the name suggests, they have a work to be accomplished. But how do you do that work? What do we do to prepare men for that work? 
But even as reduced as the sphere of the home, what is it that Solomon said in the long ago in Proverbs 22 and verse 6? Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old he will not depart from it. There is training that is a part of, and thus there is a message, a material to be shared. And we see that. And when we think about these acronyms, uh, when you look at those various things like strengths and opportunities and uh, um, the weaknesses and those threats that come along, how do you how do you deal with that? How do you figure that out? Or or, or strengths and opportunities and aspirations and uh, some way to find out if you are making the requirements, the the per the performance evaluation and review techniques. The idea is, where are we now and where are we going? You know, when our elders went through strategic planning, the way they looked at it was, how do you build a bridge from now to then, from the here to the there? That involves a message, a material, that's given to those who come after us. When you look at Jesus, Jesus was involved in that very thing. Jesus gave those that would follow him, those who would be taking up the task that he was leaving to them, he gave them material that they could use. And the way that he did it was through a a saying of, it is written. You'll find in Luke's gospel that he's always saying, look to what scripture has said, look and see what's written. Jesus even did that before he got involved in his public ministry. You remember when he's confronted by the devil in the wilderness in Luke chapter 4, verse 4, verse 8, and verse 10? He says to him three times, it is written. When Jesus is speaking to the crowds on various occasions, he would point them to the scriptures. When they were trying to figure out who John the Baptist was in Luke chapter 9, and verse 27, Jesus says that he is the one of whom it is written. And then when Jesus was confronted by his enemies, he often was doing the same thing. Do you remember when one of the lawyers came to test him and ask him about what the greatest commandment was in Luke chapter 10 and verse 26? Jesus says, what is written? How does it read to you? Jesus was patient and willing to do that on many occasions when his enemies tried to challenge him. In the cleansing of the temple in Luke 19 and verse 46, and when he followed up an unpopular parable, he said, it is written... Luke chapter 20 and verse 17. But it's with the apostles, those men that he was focused on, that Jesus really repeatedly gave the material that they needed to take up the mantle of responsibility after him. When he was about to go to Jerusalem, he says in Luke chapter 18 and verse 31 that the the things which were written, the Son of Man must accomplish. And then when Jesus was looking at the future of Jerusalem, He teaches in Luke chapter 21 and verse 21 and 22, and he says those that are in the hills of Judea must flee, and those who are in the city must leave, and those who are in the country must not come into the city, for these are days of vengeance, that all things may be fulfilled which are written. In Luke 22 and verse 37, Jesus is speaking with the apostles about his arrest and his crucifixion, and he says that the things that were written must be accomplished, that he was numbered with the transgressors. And so now that Jesus has been raised from the dead and he points ahead to the future of what's going to take place, he does so by looking to the past and saying this is what was written. Luke chapter 24, verse 44 and 46. When we consider what's involved in training those who come after us, we consider the importance of the material. What is it that we're going to share with them? You know, of all the things that are needed in succession planning... One thing that we cannot neglect 
It's to make sure that those who come after us and take the mantles of leadership are spiritually informed. When you look at Hosea chapter 4 and verse 6, Hosea said, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I have also rejected you from being my priest. Because you have forgotten the law of the Lord your God, I have forgotten your children. This was because they did not know God's word. Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 13, that my people have gone into exile because of a lack of knowledge. In Leviticus chapter, I'm sorry, in Malachi chapter 2 verse 7 and 8, Malachi says that it was the responsibility of the priest to preserve knowledge because he represents the host, uh, the Lord of hosts. But he says, you've caused my people to go out of the way because you have forgotten the instruction. What we need to give the generation after us, always, is a higher biblical IQ. We need to be training and instilling in those who are young now and in growing up in our absence that they will come to the table every single time and they will ask with sincerity and will ask with intention and not as a last minute desperation as Zedekiah did and ask Jeremiah 37, 17, is there a word from the Lord? If you look at what Jesus did with the apostles in training his replacements, he gave them the right material. There's a great many practical things that we need to, to give. And there's sometimes nothing that can replace experience. But the foundation has got to be ever God's Word. How wonderful when leaders, when faced with a, a difficulty about what to do in making a decision or how to deal with people, will always open up the Word of God and say, Is there a word from the Lord? But then second, let us notice that training your replacements requires the right mentoring. When we look at Jesus, it's interesting that Luke chapter 6, verse 12 through 19, focuses on Jesus handpicking his apostles. It has been said that Jesus was more interested in spending time with 12 than with 1,200. He realized the truth that we realize that a leader in whatever sphere we're talking about can so dilute our time trying to help so many different people that we fail to focus on some that we might bring along as pupils that we can mentor and help them to grow in leadership. You know, those who focus a, a great deal of time on a few people can help to invest more greatly in the kingdom's success. And you see that with Jesus. Jesus shows us what happens when one focuses on training and mentoring just a small group of people. When you see what happens in the Gospels, you'll find, I think it's been described well, that Jesus, the mentor, supplied several things. He supplies, uh, supplied handles. That individuals, that is, the apostles, could take what he taught and they could grasp it. They could practice it and then they could reproduce it and share it with others. If you look at what Jesus, the mentor, provided, he also provided for them a road map. And when they think about what a road map does, it gives a big picture. It tells you where the road's going. It tells you what roads to take. It tells you what roads not to take. And throughout the Gospel of Luke and all the Gospels, we see Jesus doing that very thing. He also provided for his pupils a laboratory. He didn't just lecture. Do you notice repeatedly throughout that Jesus is taking them along with him so that they can get their hands dirty, they can be involved in the work that he is leaving to them? But he also gives them roots. He roots them, as we saw a moment ago, in his material, in his word, in the things that are written so that they were willing to die for him and for the teaching. And he gave them wings. 
Jesus allowed those that followed him to be able to not only go where he went, but to be able to go where he had not gone. In John 14 and verse 12, he says, The works that I do, you will also do. And you'll do even greater works, for I go to my Father. Jesus is mentoring that small select group of individuals. And it paid such dividends. We don't have time to look at all of it, but I want you to think about for just a moment as you walk through the Gospel of Luke and see all the principles that Jesus showed those that he was trying to train. He showed them that daily priorities are, are, are such that they, we should trust God's provision. In Luke 12 and verse 22, don't worry about future threats. Don't worry about future problems. In Luke 14, verse 7 through verse 11, Jesus teaches that honor comes in humility. Later on, Jesus is going to say that the, the, the powerful, the princes of the Gentiles, they practice authoritarian principles on their subordinates. But it's not to be that way with you. You show greatness through humility. Luke 22 and verse 26. Jesus also shows that you've got to make sacrifices in discipleship. And leaders are servants. And as leaders serve the Lord and serve others, we've got to deny ourselves. Jesus taught his disciples in Luke 15 and verse 7 that every single individual has value, has abilities, and they'll be treasured for who they are. As the shepherd leaves the 99 and goes to take care of the one, there is no one unimportant. In Luke 16 and verse 8, Jesus teaches that with regard to the planning and the vision of his people, that it ought to be as great as or greater than those out in the world. So what kind of vision, what kind of planning, what kind of investment are we making into the future of the body of Christ? In Luke chapter 17, verse 19 and 26, Jesus is teaching there that uh, those who do well with the little that they're given are given greater opportunities. When we consider the importance of mentoring, think about those that you can reach. There is no mistaking that on the other side of the training that was provided to these apostles, that they were different men afterwards than they were before. You go to the book of Acts and you see in chapter 4 and verse 13, with regard to Peter and John, that those who watched them and observed their confidence and know that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed. And they took notice that they had been with Jesus. The very thing that Jesus had said in Luke 6 and verse 40. He says, a pupil is not greater than his teacher, but every student, when he has been fully trained, he is like his teacher. No, we maybe can't find twelve, but maybe we can find one or two. And bring them along in growth and development in the church. We can do that by helping them to help us to assist in a Bible class or to assist in a Bible study. Or perhaps we can help them to have a greater impression on what the work of the Lord involves in comforting the hurting, in reaching a lost and dying world. Find that one or two people that you can bring alongside and that you can help. Jesus says that training the replacements requires not only the right material, but the right mentoring. But it also requires the right mission. Jesus, in Luke chapter 24, tells them about their mission, especially in verse 48. Do you see what their mission was? Their mission was to convict the world. Jesus leaves them by saying that, that repentance is to be preached in his name. The world moves further and further away from God. It needs a conviction 
that comes from the power of the gospel. But at the same time, you'll notice the balanced message of Scripture is that it was to console the world. Not only repentance, but the forgiveness of sins was to be preached in His name. But He also says, I want you to connect the world. I want you to preach this message to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And then I want you to convince the world. And here's perhaps the most important part, and we cannot leave it undone. He says, you are my witnesses of these things. Verse 49. As we consider the mission today, it hasn't changed. We are still to convict the world. You know, the world would like to say that the talk of repentance is just a means of God wanting to punish us. But Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 2 and verse 4 that this is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. There's a world that doesn't know truth and error, doesn't know right and wrong. And through our demonstration and through our boldness, we can help them to see. But we're also trying to console the world. You know, as we think about all that we could be worried about right now, do you watch the news? Do you see what's happening in the world? On whatever front we're talking about, there's great uh, uh, cause for fear and uncertainty, and it seems to grow and mount. Our job is to go out into that world and to show them the consolation that's only found in Christ. But we're also to connect the world at the same time. Do you see how divided our culture is? Well, we like to divide about anything, whether it's race or politics or economics or education or any number of things. If we can find some way to denominate and divide, we'll do that. But what happens with the message of Christ is that it goes to all the nations. Same message, everywhere, to everybody. And the mission that we are training tomorrow's leaders to, to undertake, it is to connect a disconnected world. We're also to convince them. It doesn't matter what we say. It doesn't matter what we do within these walls if we're not living it outside. As we think about those who come after us, who we are training, those who are younger, those who are in our Bible classes, those who are in some position that we have influence over, we've got to remind them of what the mission is. The mission is not to so minister to ourselves that we neglect to share the gospel with the world. The mission is not to become like the world, but instead to help the world to become like Christ. The mission is not material and of this world. The mission is spiritual and it is of the world to come. And so as we look at what Jesus is doing, we reproduce that. To train our replacements requires the right mission. But it also requires the right motivation. It requires the right motivation. Hall of Fame quarterback Sonny Jurgensen was talking to a reporter one day, and he says, I've been in this league long enough to know that every week of the season that a quarterback is either in the penthouse or in the outhouse. As he understood that he had spent some time in both of those, his point was that you're never as great as your fans say you are, and you're never as bad as your critics say that you are. But as we look at those that we train to be tomorrow's leaders, we need to help them to recognize that there are going to be some outhouse days. And how do we prepare for that? And that the key and the heart of that is motivation. I want you to see this before we look at his two motivators. That Jesus ended with the positive. Yes, there were, there were challenges to come. And he didn't sugarcoat that. He dealt with the challenges. But he ends with the positive. And what are the two things that the leaders of tomorrow needed? First thing they needed was the promise. He says, Behold, I send you forth in the promise of the Father. Now, in context, that promise was the coming of the Holy Spirit. John 14 and verse 26. But there's a principle that we can't forget, that God always keeps His promise. 
This road of sacred history is filled with these sacred road markers that show us that God is true to His Word. God made a promise to Abraham. And we read about that in the book of Genesis. And 1,500 years later, we see in the writing of Nehemiah that Nehemiah says in Nehemiah 9 and verse 8 that he kept his promise for he is righteous. Another stop along the way is that they were going to, to inherit the land of Canaan. And the key verse of Joshua is Joshua 21, 43-45. And Joshua says that not one word of all of God's promise failed. It all happened. It all came to pass. And then there's the building of the temple. That was David's idea, but God carried it out through Solomon. And at the dedication of the temple in 1 Kings 8 and verse 56, we see that he brought, because of who, how good he is, he brought about every word of his promise that he spoke to his servant Moses. And now here's Jesus, way down the road. Now 2,000 years ago in the past for us, he says, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. The God who has always kept His promise will keep His promise for us. As we go about to do the mission that God has left for us, we can be motivated by the integrity of God's character and know that He will always keep His word. But we also see the power. And the power that's spoken of here is also a miraculous power. But I want you to consider this, that God never gives us any task that He does not give us the ability to accomplish. He empowers us. To do what it is that he has us to do. And we see this in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Where Luke again is going to remember these words. And he says that you're going to be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the most remote parts of the earth. And you're going to receive power from God on high. And so just a few days after this, there's going to be a simple message that was emphasized by a miracle done by eminently ordinary men. And God used those men to turn the world upside down. Acts 17 and verse 6. And so God takes you and me in our present leadership roles and what's to come. And he changes an entire world, starting with where we are. Jim Collins says that the challenge is to get the right people on the bus, to get the wrong people off the bus, to get the right people in the right seats, and for them together to determine where the the destination ought to be. And he called that road on which men should travel destination Greatness. We stand at a very difficult time in society and in our culture. And I would say that some of that's negative and some of that's scary. When we consider what's going on in the world morally, medically, economically, philosophically, so much that's a challenge. But I believe that God is opening up doors that have not been opened in our entire lifetime. God is waiting for the church to step out of the shadows and to dare boldly to do great things. The challenge for us is turning opportunity into productivity. December 10th, 2021, two EF3s and one EF2 touched down in our county. Killed 17 people, injured 63, destroyed 500 houses and 100 businesses, and and damaged 900 additional structures. But it introduced you and me to hundreds of people that we didn't know before that and that did not know us. That's the present opportunity. It highlights that we can't trust material things and we face our own mortality. There's a lot of work to do, but there are a lot of people who are willing to do it. Moses trained Joshua and as a result gave God's people a home. 
Joshua did not. And as a result, for over 300 years, every man did what was right in his own eyes. Jesus didn't leave it to chance. He left that material. He left that mentoring. He left that mission and that motivation that allowed the apostles to change the world. And it's been changed for 2,000 years. And so what is it for us? It was John Maxwell that said that the leader knows the way, he goes the way, and he shows the way. And that's the right order. Leaders in your home, in the Bible classroom, in church leadership. You've got to know the way yourself. You've got to go that way. Live it. And then you've got to show it to others. And through that, what can't we do? I believe that Maxwell had to be thinking about Jesus' words in John 14 and verse 6. When Philip says, Lord, or Jesus says, and where I go you know and the way you know, and Philip says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? And Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. The greatest leader of all time leads us to the Father in a very simple way that's true for all people. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, you're willing to repent and be baptized. You can become his follower. Maybe you're ready to do that. Maybe as a child of God, you need to come back to your leader and follow him as you once did before. Luke 9, 23 through 26. Deny yourself, take up the cross, and follow him. If you need to respond to this invitation, we would encourage you to come right now as together we stand and sing.